0: Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. At Police Care Australia, we know that happy cops make the world a safer place. We understand only too well the threats and pressures cops face every day and the toll it takes. That's why we've established a health and wellbeing hub or a place with resources where former and current police members, families and friends can get help and assistance. It's an online portal where you can get support and counselling with professionals that understand police. Police Care Australia is a joint initiative between the National Police Memorial and the Police Federation of Australia. You can find out more details about Police Care Australia at their website. www.policecareaustralia.org.au Carl Stella was a Detective Senior Constable with Victoria Police for more than 30 years. He was in the Cadets, at Russell Street and Melbourne City traffic before being stationed at Fitzroy. Carl was in Highway Patrol before having a serious motorcycle accident and taking four months off to recover. He returned to the CIB and did his rounds as a suburban detective. During the 1990s, Carl worked in the major fraud group Missing Persons Unit, slash homicide squad in 2009 carl retired due to ill health and has since qualified as a real estate agent and worked with the justice department and melbourne airport hi carl and a big warm welcome to the crime couch
1: that's a pleasure rochelle thanks for hanging me
0: why did you join the job carl in 1978
1: it's a long time ago yeah I don't know where actually uh, the time's gone Rochelle. I look as a young kid um, my grandfather was actually a cop in Italy and we'd had a number of friends of the family in the police force and growing up it just always interested me and brother got into the job a few years before I decided to join and I guess that piqued my interest he was having a great time and enjoying it and telling me what it was like at the time and I just had a fascination for it and hence me joining up at Probably a bit too young at the time, but it seemed the right right thing for me to do. One of your first
0: stints was at the Melbourne District Traffic and Patrol Division in the early 1980s. What are your memories from working on the streets then? You know, did you carry a firearm? How did you protect yourself?
1: We weren't actually allowed to carry firearms in the city because command deemed that it was too dangerous for us to be discharging firearms because of the amount of people in the city. Mind you, back in those days, we had little 32s, which um, you know, wouldn't put a scratch on a cat to tell you the truth, but yeah we uh, basically had our fists and battens to protect ourselves and, uh, and a pair of handcuffs, that was it.
0: What was life like on the streets back then? So we're talking the 1980s, what was Melbourne CBD like?
1: It was, I actually put my hand up to do permanent afternoon shift, which I did for nine months because that's when the fun started of an evening. But look, we had quite a few gangs working the streets um, back in those days. And apart from there was a skinheads and there was a couple of other notorious gangs. that uh, Sharpies? Sharpies, yep. Yeah. There was Lebanese Tigers. They called themselves back in those days. And they were notorious for street assaults, uh, armed robberies. And uh, so, yeah, it, it kept us on our toes. But look, overnight, it certainly came to light. And that's why I decided I wanted to do permanent I worked around an afternoon shift, which was a lot of fun.
0: You're in Highway Patrol. You had a crash in Sale. What happened?
1: Yeah, I was doing a, a wide load escort. I was on the police bike. And when we got up to Sale, it was a complete whiteout. The fog was that heavy. You're you could, lucky to be seen, you know, 10, 15 metres in front of you. And unfortunately, I was in front of a wide load. We were carrying, there were two semi-trailers carrying, you know, 100 plus tonne. Generators up to the power station, and unfortunately, a guy decided to overtake one of the semi trailers and didn't see me as he pulled in. And yeah, took me out as he finished his overtaking manoeuvre, didn't see the police bike, and down I went. You were out, you were hurt,
0: and literally had to take four months off. Yeah,
1: look, I did a fair bit of damage to my my left leg and it took uh, quite a few months to recover from that. But look, I went back to the highway patrol and went back on the bikes for a few weeks and then uh, convinced myself that it was maybe time to hang up the helmet and uh, get back into the cars, which I did for the, the remainder of the time that I was at the highway patrol.
0: Is that why you joined the CIB?
1: No, look, when I was earlier, I was at Fitzroy Police Station and back that was back in '81. When I was at Fitzroy, it was a different class of people living there. Back in those days, it was extremely a difficult area to work. I'd put it on par with St Kilda back in those days. A lot of violence, a lot of alcohol-related crime, stabbings, shootings on a weekly basis. And I did work towards a... I was crime-oriented even back then. But I always had a fascination to... I used to race motorcycles as a kid, same with my brothers. And uh, I wanted to get the Highway Patrol, get on the police bikes and do a couple of years there and then go into the CI, which which is, you know, that was a course that I took and that's what happened. What was DTS, Detective
0: Training School, what was that like in those days? Did they tell you to wear suits and firearms and to have drink cards at the Chevron?
1: We certainly had to wear suits and a tie. No, there are no drink cards. wish there were. But no, no drink cards. But look, there's one word. I enjoyed DTS, but there's one word that I would describe it back in those days, and for me, it was hell. I found it extremely difficult, and uh, the pressure was on every day. To, the pass mark was 75% for every exam. There were a number of exams every week, and the instructors would put the fear in God up you that you know if you didn't if even if you got 74 there's no second chances you're out that door and back to uniform you went for the rest of your career so it was pretty full-on I'd be up till two or three o'clock in the morning every night studying and then back back on the train at 6 30 in the morning back to class again. But you did pass Carl? Yeah it did pretty well actually I was pretty happy with it yeah got through it all and yeah that was the start of you know 20 25 odd years in the CI.
0: So you worked in the Outer East at several stations out there. What crimes did you target then?
1: Oh, look, it was basically anything apart from serious sex offenders, as in um, serial rapists and and homicides, obviously, but anything from thieves to drug-related offences, armed robberies, stabbings, serious assaults, serial sex offenders. Yeah, it was just a plethora of different offences that came across our desk at any any day or any morning.
0: What was the camaraderie like working in the job in that at that stage? Did you pretty much have to stick together?
1: Yeah look it was part of the course. I mean you, you had each other's back and yeah they, look there were ups and downs the same as any job but yeah when the chips were down we always pulled together and looked after each other as best as we could. Yeah I mean that was just the way it was. Everyone looked after each other's Mental health as well. If someone was having a hard time, you certainly pulled out all stops to try and look after them. A couple
0: of years later, you then went to the major fraud group. Was this a natural progression for you, Carl?
1: Uh, no, it wasn't actually. I, um, one of my uh, colleagues, I was at Epping CI at the time, and one of my colleagues. Ended up getting into the missing persons unit, or actually the fraud, corporate crime unit of Fraud Squad at the time. And he was having a great time and he rang me up and said, Listen, I think you'd enjoy it here. So it wasn't just your standardised frauds. They were working on, you know, multi million dollar frauds, corporate crime, and, and, you know, upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of frauds. And they were quite extensive in relation to corporate offenders, overseas offending as well. And I just thought, yeah what you know why not I give it a go because my end plan was to get to the homicide squad or missing persons unit and I thought well I'm going to give this a crack first and it was four years at the corporate crime unit and really enjoyable. And you must have really cut your teeth then for
0: bigger investigations and is that what you then launched you into the missing persons unit backslash homicide squad
1: Yeah look it was. It was a natural progression for me. I was either going to go to the um, the drug squad at the time, but having dealt with a number of the detectives who were at the homicide squad over over quite a few years and seeing the work that they were doing, which was you know amazing, apart from the huge hours they were they were cranking out every month, it was they were doing really great work, and that's where I wanted to go, and that's where I ended up going.
0: When you got there, the missing persons unit and homicide squad. This was something—the pinnacle of your career.
1: Was it exactly what you thought it would be? Yeah. Look, it was the work that we were doing there was. You had to be precise and concise with the, the work that you were doing. You had to dot your eyes and cross your t's. It was meticulous work, and it had to be because ultimately you're going to end up. You're going to end up at the Supreme Court um, in a trial situation, and your work had to be you know, exemplary in first class. And I, I liked that uh, style of policing and it was great work. I I really enjoyed it. The camaraderie was extremely tight. Sure, we had differences of opinions and different personalities, same as in any workplace. Yeah, look, the the work was difficult and the hour was extremely long at times. For me, it was, I felt as though I belonged there and I finally, you know, found my niche.
0: It's interesting. Every person that I've ever spoken to that talks about the homicide squad talks about how you were there to virtually uh, look after and ensure the rights of the deceased of the person that actually died is that why it was such a
1: an honour I suppose for you to to work in those squads I mean the deceased can't talk for themselves and they certainly uh, most of the time you know can't verbalise because obviously they're deceased they can't verbalise what happened to them who did what and basically the detectives are there to investigate the matter, pick up the pieces, put them all together and, and put that jigsaw puzzle back together and hopefully in the end get enough evidence to charge someone with it. So far as the families are concerned, we worked with them hand in hand and extremely closely at times. And, yeah, even to this day, usually on the anniversaries of their loved one's murders, they get on the phone and, and give me a call, And which, you know, is I can understand why, but... It must be difficult for them to have lost their loved one all those years ago, but, you know, the last port of call was a detective that sort of handled the case and held their hand right through a trial situation as well.
0: Carl, when you're in those squads, were there any cases that stuck with you and, and, and why?
1: Yeah, there was probably two cases that stood out to me, and... Um, One was uh, a guy by the, or deceased, by the name of Barry Waters. He was murdered by an offender by the name of Keith Lees, who ended up, I ended up charging him, and he ended up getting uh, convicted and got his 20 years. Funnily, well, not funnily enough, but he's currently, there's a warrant outstanding for him at the moment for a murder up in Queensland of a a young Victorian woman, so that's ongoing at the moment. But uh, the other one would have been well oh, it stands out on its own, is um, an offender by the name of Peter Dupas who's um, a serial killer and he's been convicted a number of times and never to be released. I remember
0: working as a producer for Channel 7 today, tonight, when the Vargas murder occurred, which was horrific, and I was one of the first persons to go and interview the Vargas family. Why did the Dupas case stick with you? I mean, it was a... Horrendous incident with Messina getting stabbed repeatedly in a cemetery. But what stuck with you? I remember watching the Havagas family grow grey with the tragedy and the chaos that that created in their lives, having their daughter,
1: sister murdered in such a way. But what stuck with you? I actually, in relation to uh, Dupas, I didn't have any direct Contact with the family. Other detectives on other teams were dealing directly with them. I certainly was involved in the Nicole Patterson murder and the subsequent investigation of that. And but seeing Nicole's family um, implode, I guess after Nicole's murder, that you could see that all f- unfolding uh, in front of you as the investigation continued on. But yeah, to lose such a, a beautiful soul. No different to Messina at such a young age. Yeah, was for them, you know, soul destroying really. And the way she was uh, murdered was, was unheard of. Yeah, I had never all the investigations that that I conducted myself. There were no other M.O.s in relation to how she was murdered in Australia, let alone overseas. And those overseas inquiries in relation to numerous coroners' courts uh, throughout the Western world were conducted, and there was no other ones specific to Dupas's M.O. were similar. What was unique about his M.O.? He removed the breasts of his victims and in relation to Nicole, to Nicole, we never located her body parts and also to another victim up on north of Melbourne, her, uh, one of her breasts were also removed.
0: Was Dupas on the radar before he started committing these crimes, Carl?
1: He was in... Basically from the age of 14, he'd been in and out of institutions and jails. Numerous rapes, he'd done 10, 10 years for one, six for another, eight for another, 12 for another. He'd been in and out of jail, and unfortunately, every time he was released, within weeks, he'd reoffend. And there's certainly other matters that are still outstanding that he's a suspect for to this day.
0: when you're working in those units and as you said that you the hours are relentless and there's such a workload and you really are working for the families and the victims how do you turn off how do you switch off when you're doing those big cases which just take so much of you and your personal life in every form of your life really
1: don't they yeah look it's at times it's difficult to turn off when you're you're doing massive hours the days and the weeks and the months just seem to roll into each other but yeah, I mean, looking back over the years, you can certainly see the ups and downs and ebbs and flows of your your mental health. And at the time, you don't really think about it; you just do what's necessary and get on with it. And it's only in retrospect, for me, uh, looking back over the years, that it has certainly took its toll. And yeah, in relation to the family, I'd probably do things a lot different nowadays.
0: Must be extraordinary though when you do get a win, and when you do ping, do pass. What does it feel like to be able to have him sentenced and placed behind bars?
1: Yeah, look, it's just elation. It's a, it's a group effort and a team effort. There's just not one, one individual responsible for it. It's, yeah, one thing's arresting them and charging them. The long haul is getting through an extremely lengthy trial and having a jury come back and hear those words guilty is just, oh, I still can't describe to this day. Was it difficult to
0: retire? You did over 30 years in the job. Was it difficult to make that decision?
1: It was. Look, I got to a point in my career where I realised that I'd had enough. Going back wasn't an option for me and unfortunately that option was taken away from me and I had no say in it. Look, it was, all I can say is look, I did my bit, did the best I could and at the end it was the right thing to happen. I'd done done the best I could and, yeah, all careers come to an end at some stage. But, yeah, I moved on to other things and, yeah, had an enjoyable career after that as well.
0: How difficult was it transitioning from being a police member and a police officer to all of a sudden you're a civilian? Are you looking at people in the cars as you pull up still at the traffic lights? That was something my father always still
1: did. I still do it to this day. As I said, this Lee's fellow is still out at the moment, there's a warrant outstanding for him and we know he's around Victoria somewhere. Yeah, I'm always on the lookout for him as well. It just doesn't stop. You can't get rid of it out of your system. It's just burnt into the psyche and you never take the cop out of someone. It's always there. What advice
0: would you give, Carl, to anyone in the job thinking of retiring? Yeah, what advice
1: would you be giving them? Have a plan. If you are not going to other employment, certainly... Don't have one hobby; have several and interests. Get yourself involved with in a volunteer role a day or two a week. Have other interests and get yourself involved because um, I've seen it many times where you know members are, or retired members of the force are stuck at home, and uh, especially if they haven't got a partner, it's soul destroying. Yeah, all I can say is have a hobby or get involved in an, in another with another organisation and keep yourself busy
0: you worked in a number of different roles,
1: working with the Victorian
0: government and working at the airport. What's it like to step into those workplaces where it's a different way of working, you don't have that brotherhood, which does exist in the job? How does it feel being putting yourself in a completely new workplace?
1: Look, it's, it's challenging. You haven't got that with a lot of people. I found it was difficult for me to grasp it. It was that level of professionalism. Which was lacking in a lot of areas, and that was really difficult to come to terms with. Yeah, it was, you're dealing with just civilians and no disrespect, but whether you're in the military or law enforcement, there is a high level of discipline there and when you're not working in an environment that's open slather it's interesting to say the least as you were saying
0: look at the attention to detail look at the discipline you've got to take on board you know what it's like to put together a brief of evidence you know what it's like to write a brief i mean those sorts of skills they're very transferable but you're right you're operating at such a high level you probably don't even realize
1: yeah you're right as i said it's difficult to you can transfer those skills but when you're dealing with, whether it's the corporate world or, as I said, I transitioned into real estate and then, you know, into the Justice Department just prior to COVID hitting, you're dealing with a completely different animal. And it's it's difficult to get get your head around and come to terms with it. But come to terms with it, you do. You have to.
0: Carl, finally, what does the future hold for you? What, what are you looking forward to and what are you planning on doing?
1: Well, I'm currently semi-retired. I don't know whether I'm going back into the workforce. I'll certainly be doing something, but I'm actually taking a few months off. I'm looking around at a few motorhomes at the moment, and I'm planning on doing a trip that I wanted to do when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and probably take four to six months off, head over to WA, up to Broome, Darwin, back over to Cape York, and back down the East Coast again, and I'm planning on about a five-month trip. I'll probably end up doing it by myself and with the dog, and... Yeah, seeing Australia like I've always wanted to do.
0: That sounds absolutely fantastic, just like ask the Leyland brothers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Something like that, yeah.
0: Carl, it's been delightful, lovely to catch up and thanks very much for sitting with me today on The Crime Catch.
1: Thanks very much, Rochelle, it's been an absolute pleasure, thank you.
0: Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.